he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. get me a gay mickey gotta get a gay well hello and welcome to another episode of in the details a celebration of nuance where each week i queen out on all the acting choices micro moments and magic in the minutiae that make a scene great my name is colin drucker your name indubitably is barbara Belgetti's. and this week is i don't want to say it's the barbara harris episode but it is a Barbara Harris episode in which we're going to be doing a deep dive into her um, moments of brilliance, her Best Supporting Actress nominated moments of brilliance in 1971's Who is Harry Kellerman and Why is He Saying Those Terrible Things About Me? In which Barbara Harris plays Alison Densmore, a uh, struggling, somewhat aging New York actress slash singer um, who catches the eye of Dustin Hoffman's Georgie, who is a famous music producer. The whole movie is really about Dustin Hoffman, and it's this day in the life, this very bizarre day in the life of his character. It's, it's sort of the, um, I guess you could describe it as the ennui of the super successful, the ennui of, of being at the top and all of the anxieties that come with it. It might be one of those movies that maybe we don't get or just didn't really work. It's uh, directed by Ulu Grossbard, and it's written by Herb Gardner and uh, stars Dustin Hoffman, as well as Jack Warden. Uh, and of course, oh, and they, oh, Dom DeLuise is in it too. And it's just worth mentioning because I just love saying the name Dom DeLuise. Um, but most importantly, it stars or co-stars really Barbara Harris. And, and really, I would say only about 13 minutes of the movie and she doesn't come in until well after the hour mark, I think like an hour and 12 minutes. I mean, full disclosure, I have not even watched the entire movie. I've watched little snippets of it, and I, I'm kind of intrigued by it. Like, I'm, I find myself resisting it, but there's something. It's made in 1971. It's all set in New York. It, it has this 70s New York feeling. It's, it's a little weird and a little experimental, and I think there's something about 70s cinema and, like, the the weird shit people were trying, that sense of a, of a, of a revolution in, in the art and the movies that people were making in the 70s and that kind of like cultural response thing that I think is, is fun to see. And, and it feels, even if the movie maybe doesn't work, I guess it doesn't feel the same way movies made now with the same experimental flair feel where they're like, see, look what I'm doing. Ooh, did you see that? Did you see that little trick I did? There's an element of that, but it feels like less self-aware. It feels like it's less aware of of an audience um, that it's trying to goop. I don't know. Um, I, again, I didn't watch the whole thing, so maybe that's a, an unfair statement. But what I did see, I, I liked. And it seems also like the kind of movie that you have to you have to let go of, I don't know, classic narratives or you have to let go of everything making sense or everything working. You know, that idea of like, uh, there's that expression like wabi-sabi when there's like certain elements that are slightly out of place or slightly don't work and that kind of makes the whole thing work. Am I understanding wabi-sabi correctly? Um, anyway, I, I, I'm willing to give this movie those... Um, I don't know, those excuses, A, for like some of the elements of it that I've seen that I enjoyed, but B, B for Barbara, uh, B, Barbara Harris. I mean, you really don't have to watch the rest of the movie to really appreciate her element, her, you know, her, her contribution. I'm sure seeing the whole thing, it feels even more impactful. But I, what I love, I think, about her performance in this movie, beyond everything else we're going to queen, uh, queen out about today, is that it is in this movie that people don't really talk about or remember, and it has this strange title, and um, it, it, it's this little gem that, that's kind of hidden. Um, it's, it's this little beautiful seashell that's on a beach that nobody really visits, you know? And I, I should look up and see who else was nominated that year, because... I think if the idea is that, I think if we use the criteria, and we're going to be talking about Oscars in a second, obviously, but if we use the criteria that a, a 
let's say Best Supporting Actress, for example, because that's the only category that matters. If we use the criteria that it's a performance that haunts you in some way or sticks with you, I mean, the way I think about Best Supporting Actress is this is a woman. I mean, it's a role, but it's the woman playing it. Uh, This is a woman who took less screen time and a smaller character and managed to shine just as brightly as someone who had more screen time and a richer character. Um, I, you know, when, on All Right, Mary, we, we talked about on All Stars 4, this concept of the best supporting actress, that there are contestants who are best supporting actresses. And if you watch Drag Race, like a classic example would be Katya or Monique Hart uh, or Ben de la Creme um, or Aja. These are these queens that didn't win their seasons, but they have these significant storylines that we remember. They kind of pop out. I mean, I think, I think the, the award of Miss Congeniality is essentially... It kind of turns into best supporting actress, I think, in a way, or or dovetails in some way. So the 1972 nominees for best supporting actress in a supporting role for movies that came out in 1971, um, it was the no- the other nominees other than Barbara Harris were Ellen Burstyn in the Last Picture Show, Cloris Leachman in the Last Picture Show, and Margaret in Carnal Knowledge, and Margaret Layton in The Go Between. Um, I'm not familiar with the go-between or Margaret Layton, so I'm going to put a pin in, in her, so to speak. Uh, I am familiar with, obviously, with Anne Margaret, mostly from grumpy and grumpier old men, but she's great in those movies. Like Those movies, I feel like, are such a staple of my childhood. They, they feel like something... I don't know. That just like that and like The Simpsons are like things I saw in, this, in my childhood a lot. Um, and so I'm sure Anne Margaret is great in Carnal Knowledge. I, I like her. Um, and then The Last Picture Show, that movie has been on my list forever, mostly, largely because of Cloris Leachman, who ultimately won that year. And I can't argue with it. I love Cloris Leachman. Uh, fun fact, Cloris Leachman and Barbara Harris later went on to co-star in a movie called The North Avenue Irregulars, which I've seen. Um, big thank you to Craig if you're listening. For That was kind of my introduction to Barbara Harris. Uh, and he was really my introduction to Barbara Harris as a listener from All Right Mary and, of course, in the details. And it's, it's such a – it is – I mean, I – I typically do not go for more family kind of movies um, or movies that I think won't have lots of depth or lots of actresses having moments. And if I were to look at the North Avenue Irregulars and think this movie lacked actressing, then I would be sorely mistaken because it is so GD funny. There is, I think at some point I'll have to like at least do like a micro segment on it. Like there is a moment that Cloris Leachman has in that movie that. I I think it it's like moved into my top ten funniest moments I've ever seen in a movie. I, it's and it's all purely because of how of her. Like there's it's just her being funny, you know. Like I think there's one thing when someone's kind of doing pratfalls and stunts, and it's all kind of part of the scene. But especially an actress, when when an when the magic of a moment hinges on her comedic timing and her like <laughs> and her facial expressions and her and, and her ability to like find the funniest notes in a moment like that's I could watch that all goddamn day (laughs) Um, so I'm not mad that she won the Oscar and Barbara Harris didn't I also don't think Barbara Harris was that upset about it Um, I think one of the things that intrigues me about Barbara Harris is that uh, again as we're going to talk about the Oscars in a second she she was nominated for I mean Golden Globes she won a Tony in 1967 for the Apple Tree she was nominated for on a clear day, you can see forever for the Tony for Best Actress. Um, she's, you know, she's gotten a lot of recognition for a relatively um, curated, or I want to say short, but really curated career in Hollywood. Um, it's almost like anytime she did something, people were like, oh, wow, that was really good. And I think every time Barbara Harris was in a movie, there was that feeling of, why is this woman not a star? Like, this is, she's, She's Meryl Streep levels of talented, if not more so. And what I what I love about her and kind of reading more about her is that she she wasn't she didn't want to be famous. Like that she wasn't doing all of this to be famous. She didn't need the awards. She talked about um, what she loved the most was the rehearsal process. You know, um, you know, doing a show, for example. She had said that you know the part that she liked the least was once it was time to mount the show and then just do it every night because she said the work was done then. We didn't get to do any more exploring. It all had to be locked in, and and that's kind of where I check out. And so 
she's she talked about where like she kind of chose roles in movies that she didn't expect to really do well because she didn't want to have to like deal with the fame game and it's it all feels very genuine it, it doesn't feel like this this humble brag or this kind of false modesty um because her career it's really it shows i mean the movies that she's been in it's a, it's such a strange filmography um and yet you know i mean it's funny that she says she's she'd chosen roles that in movies she didn't think would do well. Maybe that was later in her career because um, I haven't seen it yet, but it's also on my list to see 1975's Nashville, uh, but directed by Robert Altman, which is, you know, cast of 24, uh, just so many women, so many men, so many people. Uh, and uh, she has a significant role in that movie. She's, uh, and I've, I've seen clips of it. I've seen the clip towards the end, but it's such a massive movie that I think, there's probably so much more impact to see the ending after the hours of what it transpired before, right? But uh, I also really want to see that because uh, Nashville, I think, was nominated for uh, – what was it? I think I wrote this down. Did I forget to write it down? Um, oh, yeah, like four actresses from Nashville were nominated. So Barbara Harris in the 19 19- – 76 Oscars, probably, because Nashville was 1975. So at the... uh, Oh, no, this was the Golden Globes. Excuse me. I looked this up. So she was nominated for a Golden Globe for Nashville, as well as, I believe it was Ronnie Blakely, Shelley Duvall, and... Oh, who was the other one who was nominated? Oh, that's going to drive me nuts. Um, No, Lily Tomlin, of course, because I think she was nominated for an Oscar as well. So all four of them... I mean, think about that. There's like... I think there were maybe six nominees, maybe five. But anyway, most of them were from Nashville, and all four women lost out the Golden Globe that year to Brenda Vaccaro. My worlds are colliding. I didn't think I'd have to make a choice, you know? So Brenda Vaccaro, this was her big year. She she was in this, like, adaptation of a Jacqueline Suzanne book called Once Is Not Enough. She was nominated. This is her, her Oscar nomination as well. She won the Golden Globe for this role, and everything I've read is that, like, I haven't seen that movie yet. I've only seen a couple of clips. And she's great, but it's kind of like, Brenda, come on. You and I know that like you you could probably do better than this. Like you're Brenda fucking Vaccaro. Um, it's, I don't know. That's one, you know, when we do the Brenda Vaccaro episode, Vaccaro, Brenda Vaccaro, the Brenda Vaccaro episode, and granted there will be many, we'll have to really talk about why she was nominated for Once Is Not Enough and um, why that could be considered a peak of her career. But we'll also have to talk about, and I've only, again, I see a lot of clips of things. I kind of, I like appetizers, and then I'll figure out if I want the whole meal. But I did see a clip of her in uh, You Don't Know Jack from probably like over 10 years ago. But it was a Showtime or HBO movie about Jack Kevorkian with Al Pacino. And there is this scene on YouTube between the two of them. And it's got to be a lot of improv. You know, you can watch a certain scene and... uh it's just like, oh, there's no way this is scripted unless it's like the comeback, you know? And she keeps up with Al Pacino. It's really, uh, it's incredible. It really, it's just, it's like watching that. I'm like, God damn, Brenda Vaccaro, you, you could keep up with Al Pacino. I, I have been selling you short. Even with all the love I show Brenda Vaccaro, I still am selling her short. But anyway, this is not the Brenda Vaccaro episode. This is the Barbara Harris episode. Uh, and specifically, we're going to really kind of like what we did if you if you listen to the uh, Don't Go to Sleep episode, the, the made-for-TV movie of 1982, uh, made, the made-for-TV hereditary of 1982. We did a real breakdown of that fight between Valerie Harper and Dennis Weaver. We'd kind of do a similar exploration of um, Barbara Harris's audition scene today in Who is Harry Kellerman and Why is He Saying Those Terrible Things About Me? But first, I do just want to say, and I don't want to go on too long because I know sometimes in the beginning I can just like ramble for a bit. Um but it's just because I just want to, you know, I just want to share. Uh, anyway, but I want to keep this relatively brief and just mention the Oscars. I was wrong. They did not give Glenn the Oscar just because she lost it seven other times. I mean, I, I definitely felt weird about them giving it to her for the wife. I guess the reality is maybe she should have won it for... Um, what was it? Fatal Attraction. I should look up and see who, who won that year. I probably did before, and I don't remember. But in any event, 
you know, I, it's weird, that idea of a legacy Oscar or that idea of like, oh man, Glenn's never had an Oscar. It's like, there's so many actors. There's so many talented actors. Barbara Harris doesn't have an Oscar, you know? Um, that, I don't know. I, I think this idea that like, oh, it, it's it's her turn to get an Oscar. It's kind of like, you know, on Drag Race, there's this idea of like, oh, it's time for, uh, you know, a big girl to win. Or with All Stars, it's like, oh, it's time for a black queen to win. It's like, well, that's not what this is all about. It's time for like the best one to win, you know? And, and sometimes the Oscars, it's not the best one, right? I mean, I think that's, that's so often been the case. I mean, Ellen Burstyn obviously did not win the Oscar in 1972, and she also didn't win it in, like, 2000 or 2001 when Julia Roberts won it for Best Actress, and she lost out for Requiem for a Dream. And while Julia Roberts does give a a meaningful performance and certainly works very hard in Aaron Brockovich, I, I think anyone who's seen Requiem for a Dream is like, I don't get it. What else do you have to do? Like, Ellen Burstyn did everything. Uh... It's, you know, it, it's it's weird. I think that's a, I totally agree with people who feel like that's a snub because it's, um, I mean, again, if the criteria is that it's a, you know, if, if Best Supporting Actress is that an actress has, you know, taken less screen time and still managed to shine, I think Best Actress is just, um, it, it's really, I think, kind of represents a, a sense of like, here's quintessential talent at work. Here's here is, you know, an artist at the top of their game. Like, I think that's what we want to think of the Oscars as. Obviously, it's not, you know? I mean, there's movies that get zero recognition at the Oscars. There's actors and actresses who uh, will never be mentioned at the Oscars, and yet they're doing haunting, profound work. I mean, like, I just think it's worth remembering at this point that, no, Tony Collette's name was not mentioned in the nominees for Best Actress this year at the Oscars. Nope, it didn't happen. It's not a nightmare you haven't woken up from. It's still happening. Uh, yeah, I mean, granted, she did just win, uh, I think it was the Fangoria Award for Best Actress, so big thank you. Um, oh, who sent that to me on Twitter? I Why don't I do my research so I can name people properly? Um, but I want you to know that 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 does matter, and that does mean something. Um, I just wanted to get recognized somewhere. Like it's still, I, I, there is something to be said for being robbed, that people people will kind of honor you and remember you almost as if you did win or more than the winner that year. So that being said, while Glenn did not win the Oscar for Best Actress, Olivia Coleman did, and uh, which is, you know, I, the wife and the favorite were the only, they were the only nominees that I, I actually seen so far. So they were the only ones I could really speak to. I mean, I do think there is the, the poetry of, well, Glenn, you got close, but Olivia was still the favorite. I mean, like, I, I'm sorry, like, how many, how many newspaper headlines have that? All of them? Can I, you know what I mean? Like, it writes itself. The New York Post has to do zero thinking about their gonzo punny headline. I just wrote it for them, though this is days later, so chances are they've already written it. Um, but, you know, it, like there's the poetry in that. But I, I, I can totally accept Olivia Coleman winning. She is, if anything, I know I had said on a previous episode that I thought that it was possible that this was B-plus Olivia Coleman and that she's capable of like so much more than we saw in the favorite, but I don't think that should take away from the fact that she's incredible in the favorite and she has a great face journey at that party scene. And I, I could nominate that all day. I could award that all day. I think also the great reward of Olivia Coleman winning the Oscar is we got Olivia Coleman's Oscar speech. I mean, I, I, I'm just, you know, I think I think that if she wasn't so goddamn charming in that moment, people would be, you know, they might not be so nice to her. I feel like there'd be a thing of, oh, you robbed Glenn. Who I don't know who these jerks are who are saying that. But I just, again, I think after all this drag race, I'm just like, ugh, every fandom is toxic, isn't it? You know, um, even the even the Glenn Close fandom. God help us. Um, but I think that Olivia Coleman was was insanely charming. And I like that she gave Glenn Close that moment of like, 
I'm sorry we're meeting this way. You know, I mean, that's... And Glenn had that lovely moment of being gracious and delighted. And, you know, uh, that was... She should have gotten an Oscar for that moment right there. You know, at, at the end of the day, I mean, like, it... I don't know. I don't... I, I think you give you can give her an honorary award, I guess. But I don't... I don't think winning an award in 2019 to make up for all the years you didn't get one for a role that's good in a movie that's not, um, I don't know. I just, I, I think ultimately it would have felt kind of, uh, kind of stale and kind of, you know, kind of flat. Those are my thoughts on the Oscars. Congratulations, Olivia. Congratulations, Regina, Regina King. I cannot wait to see if Beale Street could talk now. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's great. I, I kind of expected her to win, and I'm glad she did. Um, the only other thing I want to say before I get into the Barbara Harris episode is um, this is kind of just a little sneak preview for things to come, but I I need to do an episode. This is, uh, I don't think it's off, uh, off brand, so to speak, because I don't know what the brand is for in the details, but I need to do an episode on One Day at a Time on Netflix. I have been telling anybody and everybody that I can about the show. Apparently season four is in question and I have been, um, I've been pretty, I've been pretty shaken about that. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a great show and I don't typically like sitcoms. I do not go for family stuff, but, and I, I love the original from the seventies. Uh, you know, I used to watch it as a kid, but this car, this reboot of One Day at a Time, Norman Lear is still involved, and you can kind of feel that. But the, I mean, the writing, a lot of the, a lot of the scripts are by, are written by women. A lot of the episodes are directed by women. Um, I feel like some of the best episodes are the ones that are written by women. Uh, and it's, I mean, once you get to like episode eight of season one, and then from then on through all of season two and three, I don't think there's a single episode in which I do not get emotional at some point, in which I do not like laugh out loud, like genuine laughter, snap it at the screen, like feeling my oats, wheats, grains, thins, and oats me oatmeal, you know, like I, I love this show. And Justina Mercado, I mean, I don't, I, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I am a big fan of talking through tears and I don't, I don't know anybody better than it right now. She is the queen, the reigning queen of talking through tears. I think she and Olivia Coleman could have a talk through tears off. I mean, uh, I don't know who'd win. I really don't. Justina Mercado is fantastic. And Rita Moreno, I, I, I mean, obviously, she's a Best Supporting Actress winner. Uh, she's, she's a legend. Um, is she an EGOT? She might be. She should be. Uh, she is so funny. And so, like, her comedic timing is genius. And then when shit gets real, like... If you start watching from the beginning, and you should, um, hang in there till episode nine, Viva Cuba, because Rita, oh my gosh, it, like, oh my God. And then keep going, because then you get to the season two finale, and Justina Mikado has this monologue that is that is Broadway level of good. Ugh, ugh. It's beyond Broadway, because it doesn't even feel like acting. Ugh, she's so great. Anyway... That's all I want to say about anything that has nothing to do with Barbara Harris. 25 minutes into the Barbara Harris episode. You guys are either really patient or your fast forward finger is atrophying at this point. But let's get into it. Uh, so things you should know about Barbara Harris. She is, I think one of the most important things is that she is a founding member of Second City. And as I said before, she won the Tony for Best Actress in a Musical for The Apple Tree in 1967. Um, her, her film career, uh, one, I mean, there's some weird ones that I haven't seen, and I'm probably going to be doing some catching up. But as I mentioned before, Robert Altman's Nashville from 1975, which I think will end up getting its own episode here. Um, she was also in Alfred Hitchcock's Family Plot. And again, I haven't seen that either. I, I mentioned these almost as like notes for myself. She was in the original Freaky Friday. She does the Freaky Friday switch with Jodie Foster. Uh, I think, oh, I think she 
And uh, she and Jodie Foster were both nominated for Golden Globes in 1977 for Freaky Friday. The And I know this is silly. I haven't seen it either, but I saw some clips of it, and she's she's a genius. Um, but it's worth mentioning 1977 Golden Globes. Um, she lost the Golden Globe to Barbara Streisand in A Star is Born, which I, I can't verify if that's fair, but okay. Um, but what's also worth noting is that in 1977, which is the year in which Beatrice Strait won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for Network, she didn't even get a, a, a Golden Globe nomination. So, you know, these award shows are, are full of surprises, you know? Um, the other thing I want to say is, oh, what else do I want to say? Oh, I mentioned the North Avenue Irregulars, which is, is, oh my God, it's so funny. I, it's about this like group of church ladies that band together to like push like organized crime out of their town. And it sounds like it wouldn't work. Like that description might not grab you by the by the shingalingas, but trust me on this one. It is, it's just the, the delight of watching 70s TV actresses like be like running the ship. You know what I mean? Like they are just, oh my God, Cloris Leachman, Kim Valentine, Barbara Harris. It goes on. There's so many, it's just so good. Um, Edward Herman, who was the grandfather in Gilmore Girls, is in it as a as a young new priest in town. And I guess he's supposed to play like, they're all kind of swooning over him. I'm like, eh, I guess so. I mean, he 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 looks like he's packing heat. I'll give Edward Herman that. But uh, other than that, I don't know if there's really sex appeal. But sometimes those guys are the surprises. Um, but more on that another time. So uh, let's zoom in on who is Harry Kellerman and why is he saying those terrible things about me. Again, a movie that was not well received by the critics. The New York Times Basically, they said it was just, like, boring and indulgent. But what they did say, I, I took a few quotes from reviews where they mentioned Barbara Harris. And, and the, really the running theme here is, in general, the movie is being panned. But when the reviewer kind of, you know, perks up or warms up a little bit is usually in regards to Barbara Harris. Um, Roger Ebert had said at the time, you know, uh, he said, I think Dustin Hoffman's two long scenes, not too long as in T-O-O, but two his because there's two i think his i think both of the long scenes with barbara harris are among the best cinema i've seen in some time miss harris has earned an academy award nomination hands down very prophetic mr ebert though i mean i though i will say the new york times review uh he does say the performances like material the performances like material are essentially comic and i liked everyone especially mr hoffman and barbara harris as georgie's finest one night stand whom mr gardner has given another one of those laughing through her tears speeches i can now do without i have to hope that this is a typo and that he meant to say that i can i can now that i i cannot do without because this is we'll get into it but in for him <laughs> I can't even, you know, like for someone to take a dig at laughing through their tears speeches, that gets me right to my core, <laughs> you know? <laughs> anyway, um, so Barbara Harris in this movie, as I mentioned earlier, she's playing this somewhat aging actress slash singer in New York, um, real name Allison Densmore, pretending to be uh, Linda Kaiser, who she says is her roommate, who actually doesn't even exist at all. Uh, and she's auditioning for a musical called Now with a song called Painting the Clouds with Sunshine from 1929. Uh, so this is, you know, like probably a perfect encapsulation of off, off to a bad start. Like already, like she, she's going into this moment knowing she is not right for this. And I think that tension is really exciting. Um, she she enters the movie, I, yeah, an hour and 13 minutes in, and she's really slumping into this theater already late. Uh, and so there's that frenetic energy of we as well. And she's got her hair done up. She's wearing this cute you know, little red dress and you know these long gold chains hanging from her neck. And there's that audition thing where she's sitting alone on this stage. You know, there's just like the chair and the ghost lamp and, and is speaking to these disembodied voices out in the audience, out in the dark. You know, these, um, these ghosts in the theater, really. Hello. I'm sorry, I was late. I'm late. Can I sing for us now? Yes, yeah, sing, yes. Yeah. Or we could just chat for a while. 
right. Chat, great. Let's chat for a while, great. Tell us what you've been up to. Up to. Tell us what you've been doing here. Doing? Would you consider yourself primarily a singer or an actress or what? Uh, an amnesia victim. Fellas, either you're in my nightmare or I'm in yours. Darling, what would you like to do? Leave. I'm sorry I can't do these auditions. I have to leave now. Filters can be fun. I just remembered. That's the last thing I did. A commercial. I had fun with a filter. Green Miss cigarettes. We finished chatting now? Hmm. I think I'm finished chatting now, Mr. Halloran. I'd only read in like one place someone saying that they felt that Barbara Harris had likely written or improvised most of this scene, um, which I would consider to be likely true if she is a founding member of the Second City. Um, and also because like the way that she performs everything in this scene, it none of it feels like they were ever words on a page. Like the way that she's speaking, the way that she's acting, it's as if these words never really existed until the moment she said them. This next sequence, you know, it, where she's she's fetching her sheet music out of her bag and, and going over to the accompanist and under the stage and handing it to him. You know, I could watch this all day. It's all it's all these mannerisms. It's, it's little ticks of nervousness and um, just little moments of humanity. I, there's this brilliant visual gag. You know, she goes over the the guy in the back tells her to hand her music to down to this basically another dark, mysterious corner of her audition uh, to the pit under the stage. And she kind of tentatively goes over and hands down her sheet music. And then this hand shoots up and grabs it. And she just like honks in surprise. <laughs> Would you like to sing now, Linda? Yes. Did you bring your accompanist with you? No, nobody. No, no one. Do you have the sheet music? Yeah, got that. Just hand it right up Shock, dear, where? Ah, ghosts. This place is full of ghosts. Oh, piano. There's a piano down there. I can't possibly mention every nuance, but I mean, watching it closely, you can see, you know, the way that she quickly licks her upper lip or scans the lights above her, or kind of she tosses her head around while she talks, and then she looks out as if she's looking into someone's eyes and holds that stare just long enough to to keep it interesting, you know? And then she, she kind of makes her way back to her seat, um, and as she's going back to her seat, she's really, I think, in a way admitting here that she's in on the colossal joke of it all. Well, uh, this is a very, very old song. Now is not a good title for me. Your show was called Last Tuesday or maybe 1957. I had a very good year and a good summer, especially in 1957, I remember. That's what I was going to do is relax and sing, Pete. It's a little tough to hear him in the back of the house, but I believe he says, why don't you relax and sing? And, and the way that she immediately says, that's what, I'm gonna, that's what I was going to do, I was going to relax and sing, Pete. It, it's, the way, it's the way that she says Pete. It, it, this is where nuance matters. It's, there's something about that moment. It feels like this flash of steel, which we will sort of see later in the movie. It, it makes sense with her character. Um, but that... That moment of, uh, there's that tension, and it all comes out because she says his name. That, I don't know, it, that is totally, there would be a difference if she just said, that's what I was going to do, I was just going to relax and sing. It would be more um, passive in the moment. But the fact that she says, that's what I was going to do, I was going to relax and sing, Pete. Like, she, she's, she's talking back to him a little bit. And I like that because it feels like a cardinal sin for an audition. And it, again, all the more reason why this is like a failure before she even starts singing. And her singing is devastating. I mean, she, she's got that occasional Brenda Vaccaro raspy quality that I love, um, especially towards the end, right as she's building up, like right before they, uh, right as uh, she's getting to the best part, as she says, like right before they cut her off. I pretend I'm gay I 
never feel that way. I'm only painting the clouds with sunshine. Tomorrow, babies. When I hold back a tear to make a smile appear. Georgie is hopeless. I'm only painting the clouds with sunshine. Georgie. Painting the blues, beautiful hues, colored with gold and old rose. Playing the clown, trying to drown all of my woes. Linda, thank you. Though things may not look bright, they'll all turn out all right. Oh. The best part was just coming up. Well, that'll be fine for now, thanks. I have three good notes I never seem to get to come. So at some point while she's singing, she kind of just slowly reaches out and and grabs the ghost lamp next to her and just is gripping it. And and so when she's done singing, it really kind of <laughs> becomes apparent that she can't let go of it. And that becomes the next beat, is that she she can't leave. The, the, the actor's nightmare... <laughs> gets even worse in that she literally can't leave because she's attached to this lamp. And so listen listen to the way that she says, I love this, the way that she says, I can't leave, I'm sorry, I can't leave. I, you know, it's, <laughs> I, that I'm sorry is brilliant. But then as she's talking, because that's from like, a, there's a faraway shot while she's saying that. And then we get a more of a close-up shot, like a, I don't know what the term would be. But it's totally worth watching all of the the work that her left hand, the one that's not gripping the lamp, is doing in in this next moment of her talking about um, not being able to leave. Like it's it is a buffet of hand gestures. And again, Barbara Harris, if she doesn't have her right hand to to gesture with and act with, her left hand will just work overtime. Well, Miss Kaiser, we just don't have the time. I can't leave. What? I can't leave. I'm sorry. I I can't leave. I can't seem to let go of this lamp right now. You fellas go ahead. I'll be all right soon. So then this other character of Pete leaves and uh, Georgie, you know, kind of sends everybody else home and uh, he approaches Allison, still thinking she's Linda on the stage. Uh, I, I think we, we kind of know from him watching her singing that he's something in her has stirred something in him. And it's like he's just following like following this 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 note that he's hearing down at the end of a hallway and he's moving towards it in a way I think that's what's happening here and I get so excited in this moment whenever I watch this scene because yes I've watched it many times because it's it's like knowing that there's this whole showcase of acting about to happen you know like when your favorite scene in a movie is about to start and you're like oh shit this is like it's gonna be so good for the next like three or four minutes right now. And that's how I feel watching this. I feel like I just auditioned for the part of human being and I didn't get the job. Yeah, I know what you mean. See, it, it took me three weeks to get this audition. And I bought a new dress and I worked on my song. And, and I had my hair done, Mr. Max 2250, a work of art with lashes. And now I can't leave right away. I just can't leave right away. I, I will just have to hang around here for a while, see? Fine. Fine. Sit where you are. Thank you. I can't move anyway. My hand is stuck on this lamp. Really physically stuck? Yeah. It happens all the time. I get stuck on the things. Chairs, coffee cups, doorknobs, people. I'll be all right soon. Just don't shake hands with me or anything. So as Georgie gets on stage and approaches her, it, it's really Allison seeing him for the first time, like realizing, oh yeah, these were all just these disembodied voices really until this moment. You have kind eyes. It's funny to see your face after all that darkness. It's a nervous face, but kind eyes. <laughs> oh God, I hate these auditions. I'm not what you're looking for. <laughs> I'm not even Linda Kaiser. She's my roommate. My name is Allison Densmore. I never use it because it sounds so old, centuries old. Oh, it's, it's a nice name. It's 
graceful. Sounds like a lot of doilies to me. So Densmore, I believe it's Barbara Harris's middle name, but it's definitely her mother's maiden name, which is all the more reason why I think uh, she's written or improvised a lot of this. Um, or the the screenwriter, Herb Gardner, he had also written A Thousand Clowns, which Barbara Harris was in as well. That was one of her early movies, I think in the late 60s. I think she was nominated for a Golden Globe for that. Um, again, have not seen it, but um, it's on my list. So uh, yeah, so it could be also that he's worked with her before. And so he kind of threw that in there. But uh, I don't know. I, I like the idea that, that this is her. I'd like to give credit to her for that. <laughs> um, so there's really this, you know, and, and we, we see it really happening here and we'll see a lot more of it, but it's this vacillation between uh, more of a more childlike voice, you know, which is a, appropriately accompanied by a lot of nervous fiddling with the, with the gold chains around your neck and um, the way they kind of are le- nearly like pooling in her lap. It's like a child wearing her mother's jewelry in a way. Um, but there, the story of the adult woman underneath all of that really starts to reveal itself the longer that Allison talks. But first, opera. Very beautiful here with the lights on. This is a, this is a great set for Lucia de Moor, Dawn on the Moors. I study opera every day and hour. You like opera? Yeah. I have them all in here. Opera's the best. People live at the top of their lives and die very beautifully. Lucia and Eduardo, they meet on this moor at dawn. She saves him in a way, but mostly he saves her from a wild bull, and she's crazy about him. But so they save each other. (laughs) As her laughter fades, she makes eye contact with Georgie, and she slowly starts to dissolve. It's this sort of sad realization, and if these few seconds were the only few seconds she had in the movie, Barbara Harris would still be nominated. Mister, listen to me, I'm still auditioning. All the time I think I'm auditioning. I wake up in the morning and the whole world says, thank you very much, Miss Densmore. That'll be enough for now. I'm crying so hard, one eye at a time. Hey, can I get you some coffee? Hmm? Something you like? No, mostly I'd like to get my hand off this lamp. As much as I love watching people cry in movies, I also love watching people try to not cry in movies. I I do not think that Barbara Harris merely laughs through her tears as the New York Times sighed about. I think she's really contending with them. I think it's like an emotional thumb war. You know, she, she typically wins. She typically is able to kind of tamp them down. But when she loses, she, she kind of diverts to making a joke about it or making a scene about it. When George is, when, when he's offering her coffee and he's offering her something to kind of make her feel better, she, she presses her fingers to her mouth like really hard, like she's holding, she's holding back either vomit or a scream. And her eyes, I mean, this is, you have to see this. Her eyes just like shimmer as they fill with tears. And it's, it, there's an intensity there. It, it's like watching a water balloon fill up and wondering if it's going to pop. But then she pivots to the lamp and she makes that joke about the lamp and then she pivots again. I have to go back to work soon. I'm a corporate librarian. That's a file clerk. With only three good notes, you have to back yourself up with something. <laughs> I think I'll be able to get this lamp in a taxi. I'm crying from the other eye now. This next part I, of course, melodramatically posted on Twitter on my 34th birthday, um, but I don't feel the same way she does about being 34, turning 34. Um, I just, I love, I love the idea of someone talking about turning 34, I guess. Um, and I also love, like, if we're going to be specific here about Barbara Harris on a Barbara Harris episode, it is the unexpected sob that comes out when she says, it's my birthday. Like, it, it it's, ugh. Oh. I, you have to see it, but you can hear it. 
These auditions, uh, I don't blame you. No, no, it's not the audition. It's not that. Then why are you crying? <laughs> it's my birthday. I'm 34 years old today, and I'm not prepared. I'm prepared for 22. Right now, I could do a great 22. I woke up this morning, and all of a sudden, I was not young. I, w I, I was not old, but I'm all of a sudden not young. Sure, you're young. Not young enough for this dress. Not young enough to be a corporate librarian with three good notes and a briefcase full of opera. Mister, I don't understand what happened to the time. In terms of like micro moments inside of these micro moments, I, I'm obsessed with the way that she says, after, you know, and like waking up and realizing that, you know, she was not young anymore. And she says, like, there's a long pause. There's kind of a consideration. And then she says, I, and I, I, I was not old. But I'm like the way that, that she does that, I, I and I, I was not old. Like, I don't, I know that's so small. Um, I don't know why that like, that catches me in my, in, like the back of my throat. Like I get, I get choked up by that delivery. Um, I don't know. It, it's, uh, I think because it sounds like someone who's 34 and having angst is that there isn't this like intense melodramatic hysterical consideration there's this level-headed resolution about things. And maybe that's what I love about it. And I think what I love about this performance in Barbara Harris is that you can say all of that in like, you know, a, a little a little self-interruption. You know, this is what this is what Lisa Kudrow does with Valerie Cherish all the time, is that by throwing in like a sentence fragment or or interrupting herself at a certain point or muttering something to herself, she ends up saying something so significant. I also love, and here is a really fantastic turning point in this scene, is that when Georgie says, sure, you're young, that this is really where the 34-year-old Allison emerges. You know, she, she shifts into this energy of a woman talking to a man who doesn't know what he's talking about. And it's, it's such a great act one gun for who Allison really reveals herself to be later on. All of a sudden, I'm going into my 10th year looking for a new apartment. I'm not much of a singer, and I'm not a gifted file clerk either. The one good thing I'm good at is being married, but my husband wasn't. That was 10 years ago. <laughs> I've never learned another trait. The time, mister, it's not a thief at all, like they say. It's something much sneakier. It's an embezzler, up nights, juggling the books so you don't notice anything's missing. I'd read somewhere that that last line about the juggling of the books, that that's potentially from another Herb Gardner script, or, um, you know, it, it it's being quoted here, or maybe just being referenced here, or perhaps the writer or director wanted to make sure that that line made it into the scene as a kind of thesis. Um I think knowing that or thinking that I can it, it might feel a little bit shoehorned, but ultimately I think it's a great sentiment. I think it's a great idea. It's a well-written line, and um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, if anyone can work it into an otherwise improvised moment, I'm sure it's Barbara Harris. Uh, so while she's saying that, um, and the camera stays very close to really just we don't see everything that's happening. We're really mostly seeing their her face and really kind of the back of his head at this point. Um, but she's leaning down and taking one of Georgie's cigarettes. He had started smoking at some point during the scene, and she uses his cigarette to light hers, which is such a... It has this kind of, like, sexy, gun mall film noir, uh, femme fatale kind of quality, right? She also lets go of the lamp and has subsequently taken hold of Georgie's arm. And I do think it's important to note that, that we don't see it. We don't see her holding his arm. Um, that at this point, it really is just about 
it's really just about her face because we're not even seeing him. Um, it's actually really cool. There, it, Dustin Hoffman's head and his hair becomes this device because it starts to it blocks maybe a quarter of the shot up to almost all of the shot, and so it sort of lets Barbara Harris do this kind of burlesque act of emotions facing us. But you know, she can she can slip partially behind Georgie, or she can obscure herself enough in a moment to. Once again, to keep it interesting, like that eye contact thing from the beginning of the scene, she'll, the choices are, are done just deliberately enough to feel like they're doing something on purpose. I think another of my favorite nuances in this scene is when she says, well, now I have your arm. And she, she sits up straight and her face goes blank with realization. It's, it's the exact way that you would say, hold up, without saying it. It feels really, like, I think it feels kind of silly to say this, but this body language, it, it feels very, it feels from a different time. It doesn't feel like body language that people had in 1971 or were showing on film in 1971. It feels, it feels like a modern acting choice. It feels like something an actor in the early 2000s would do, you know, and they probably have to even say, hold up, you know, because we need things telegraphed to us these days. The, the device of Dustin Hoffman's head as this, like, peep show screen, it works perfectly after she says, well, look at that. There's, there's this moment when with Georgie and Allison that we're not privy to. Uh, I think what happens is she says that, and then his head is mostly kind of obscuring the shot, and so they're having this moment between them that, that – we we don't know what's being said. It's like that scene at the end of Lost in Translation where we don't know what he whispers in Scarlett Johansson's ear. But I think that what she's realizing here is that she's made a connection, that she's literally suddenly attached to him, and it feels so good that it hurts. I think that's what it is. I think it feels so good. I think it's hitting a nerve that is neglected and raw at the same time. I think that's really the story of Allison. Uh, Georgie moves at one point and it reveals just like pure devastation on her face. And it doesn't even feel, it doesn't feel over the top. It doesn't feel like it's disproportionate in the moment. I think what we're seeing is just the veil lifted of how much pain Allison is in, of how lonely she is, and how much that she really does feel like she's fumbled the audition for human being. So Georgie kind of quietly asks if she's able to let go. And I don't think it's that he wants her to. I think, if anything, he's really asking if she wants to be holding on to him right now, like wanting that validation that that he's just, he's not just another object that she's attached herself to. And it's, you know, and her response to him, the response that Allison gives is really Allison the child. You know, it's, it's Allison studying opera and jumping at ghosts in the pit and playing with her jewelry. Hey, I let go of the lamp. Now I have your arm. Look at that. And so Georgie takes Allison for a ride in his private plane because, you know, he's rich and famous and feeling the ennui at the top, at the top of the world, looking down on New York, um, takes her for a ride in this plane where uh, they sing as they fly through the clouds, the clouds that she'd paint with sunshine, according to her audition song, if things ever got too dark. And I think the irony of that the irony of that being her song, the irony of this moment is that the sun is setting. And so um, I think that's really the story of Allison and Georgie. I think that's the thing they have in common is that the sun is setting on them. Can't go wrong. I'm singing my song. Can't go wrong. 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 
So they eventually go back to Allison's apartment, which is where she admits that Linda Kaiser does not exist and that she's just a character that she creates to protect herself from certain men and uh, that she couldn't be sure Georgie was one she could trust. And ultimately, I, I think that he may still be a man that she can't trust, but he's here and um, he'll be gone in the morning. So it almost doesn't matter anymore. Uh, the Alice in here is fully 34. Um if not older or, or wiser than that, I think in a lot of ways, her wry humor and, and directness that she has with him, it's refreshing, but it's also a little depressing. I think this scene in general, you know, it's played a lot quieter and with less peaks and valleys than the audition scene, but it's so worth seeing for the the transformation that Barbara Harris has, the, the, the transformation of Allison into almost an entirely different woman here. She invites Georgie into her bedroom so they can sleep together as if like that's just, you know, the next step. That's what comes next here. And I think this little section here is really like a perfect way to round out the Allison we saw in the audition. Because I think what we realize in this moment now is that even in the moments when we thought she was finally being real and not auditioning anymore in that moment, she was still auditioning in a way. She was, she was auditioning in a different way or for a, a different role. And I think now, finally, we see her not auditioning anymore or being aware of that. Be careful not to step on my mother. She lives in the linoleum and moans all night. You make it all sound very attractive. <laughs> That's my routine. I make jokes. I make jokes because you'll be gone before I wake up and I'm going to miss you. Because that's the way it goes. One of the few things I know is the way it goes. I think that's the real thesis of Alice in here. You know, auditions are a grind. Uh, you know, much like Valerie Cherish, right? In the Hollywood machine, it's a grind. Dating is a grind. There's a reason they call it grinder, you know? Uh, meeting men who aren't escape artists or resisting being one yourself, you know, because I think that Something tells me there are many times Allison has been the one to be gone by morning. All of it's a grind, you know? And it's, it's not, it doesn't feel like opera. It probably isn't opera. It isn't people living, you know, life at, at the peaks and then, and then extinguishing their flames in fabulous ways. It's just this kind of middling, mundane depressing truth that I think is real for a lot of people or feels real for a lot of people. I think Alison Densmore is a lot of people still. And while her life, while Alison, the character of Alison may not be uh, an operatic diva, she may just be a file clerk with three good notes and a fake roommate. I think, I think Barbara Harris, I think that the depth of her talent what she's able to mine or find or channel or or um, explore with this character, I think elevates Alison Densmore in some ways to feel like Lucia herself on The Moors at Dawn. That, my friends, is not the Barbara Harris episode, but a Barbara Harris episode. That is a deep dive into her Oscar-nominated work in Who is Harry Kellerman and Why Is He Saying Those Terrible Things About Me? Uh, I will have a link to the entire movie in the description for this episode. There's also a, uh, a separate clip on YouTube that's just her audition, but I think it's worth seeing all of her moments, and I'll have a timestamp of when you can just fast forward to her. Um, but I, I would love to hear your thoughts on Barbara Harris, on other nuanced actresses, on um, 
yeah, other scenes you'd love to, for, me, for me to dive into like this. Um, I I have like more things I want to queen out about than I have the time or the or the energy for, but I'm going to find both because these things are important. Um, anyway, I would love to hear from you, and the best way to do that is to drop me an email at inthedetailspod at gmail.com um, or to reach out to me on Twitter at Colin Drucker. Um, and you can always leave a hopefully positive review on iTunes. I want to say thank you to some of the amazing reviews I've gotten on there. Thank you to the listener who dedicated all of their talking through tear, tears moments to me <laughs> in, a, in a reason stage performance. That that comment gooped me. Next week, I don't know. What, oh, you know what? I do know what next week is going to be. I'm going to be having a guest on next week. We are, I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler. We are going to be queening out on the seemingly queen of Best Supporting Actress nominations, Amy Adams, and in particular, what I think is her best role ever, um, her first nominated role in Junebug. So this is a returning guest. I am very excited to have Nick Kachanoff from the Squirrel Friends Cocktail Hour and the Very Bad Gay Podcast back on next week. Um, And I hope that you'll be joining us as well. I will talk to you next week as we explore more acting choices, micro moments, and magic in the minutiae in the details. See ya.